Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So you might remember back in 2011, Essie Dugin makes history. She becomes the first black woman to win the most prestigious literary prize in Canada, the Scotiabank Giller Prize. She wins it for her book, Half-Blood Blues. You might remember a couple years later... Does it again. She wins the Scotiabank Giller Prize again, uh, this time for her novel, Washington Black. And now, Essie Dugin has a new book. And if you're thinking to yourself, all right, Tom, I'm going to carve out a month, a couple of hours a day, dig into some deeply researched historical fiction. I'll be honest with you, you should be able to read her new book in like a couple of minutes depending on how old you are, I guess. It's a children's book. It's called Garden of Lost Socks, in which, you guessed it, a young girl helps her friend find his missing sock. But like with all good children's books, it's about more than that. It's about adventure. It's about wonder. Essie joined me to talk about what inspired the book, the differences, which I assume there are many, between writing historical fiction and children's literature. Here's my conversation with Essie Adugin. Does the Does the feeling of releasing a children's book feel different than the feeling of releasing a novel? Uh, definitely. Uh, it feels like there's a, a difference. Uh, one of the most wonderful things is I've been on tour this last week uh, with this book, and children's events are really quite wonderful. Um, the audiences are so interesting and engaged and, um, you, know, you know, they're engaged because they're kind of slowly creeping closer and... Um, <laughs> Uh, and it, yeah, it's been really wonderful. I love children, so it's been it's been quite fun. Right, right, right. When you when you when you read in a bookstore or for a, in a library for a, for a novel, people are you know they cross their legs and are and are pondering and are listening intently. But with kids, you get this, you get this immediate feedback and that they literally come closer to you the more they like it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or they'll get up and wander around, or they'll you know. They'll make comments. Um, you know, you have a Q&A and somebody just wants to put up their hand and, and tell you that they like cheese or or something like that. And, you know, it's it's really it's really marvelous. Uh, I, I read that when you were a kid, I mean, this whole the whole reason you love books, the whole reason you love reading is, is your dad took you to the library when you were a kid, right? Yeah, it was basically a Saturday afternoon ritual that he'd kind of um, gather us all into his old Mercury marquee and drive us to the Shaganapi branch of the Calgary Library. And we'd just spend hours going through the stacks. And I was allowed to take out basically anything that I liked, uh, which which meant I was reading like V.C. Andrews at 11, uh, which I don't recommend. Um, <laughs> I'm still scarred. Uh, but yeah, it was really this kind of magical thing where you were transported to all of these different worlds through, you know, this massive stack of books that you hauled home every weekend. Um, it was very formative. The, the, the books that your kids read now, are they similar to the books that you read when you were a kid? You know, they, I guess they are and they aren't. I think 
You know, I think that there are some sort of classics that I, you know, I loved Betty Wren Wright. I loved Anne M. Martin. Uh, so I guess in that sense, my daughter um, is, you know, had had read a lot of kind of babysitter's club and all of this, but they are different. I feel like there's more sort of um, like, I guess, urban fantasy for preteens, these kinds of things, um, the things that my daughter is, you know, very into reading and and, uh, you know, it's been wonderful. And there's some great picture books, and some wonderful writers. What inspired this book, The Garden of Lost Socks? So this was basically inspired by the fact that a few years ago, uh, you know, kind of had enlisted my children to at least put away their own laundry. Uh, you know, this is like, do something around here. Uh, and, you know, they they were on board. But we'd find that, you know, they'd sort of put away their shirts and pants and everything. But at the end of it, there would be this kind of huge mound of socks without pairs. And we never discovered where <laughs> where these singular socks went. They were just missing. And so, you know, we're just kind of throwing around ideas of where these socks might have gone. And uh, I guess that's where the premise came from. The, the main character in this book, and I've only seen it written down, it's uh, Akosua. Akosua. Akosua has has this sort of uh, innate sense of adventure. And she calls herself a, a, a term I had never heard before, an ex-queerologist. Is that right? Ex-queerologist? Yeah, perfect. Uh, a finder of lost things. Tell, tell me more about that. Yeah, so that's a word that's made up. Oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So that might be why you've never heard it. <laughs> but, you know, it just it comes out of this this thing that kids do, at least my kids did, where they're wanting to make up these huge words that that don't exist, but maybe that are rooted in something. And so it felt very apt uh, to have her make up that word. Uh, and it's been very fun, actually, to to hear children kind of really trying to pronounce this word and, and desperate to do it. And uh, But, you know, just this idea of looking for things, seeking, seeking things within one's neighborhood, uh, and having a sense of self-sufficiency where you can find things uh, for yourself and your friends. Um, this is something that I really liked and that I wanted, you know, to be kind of an example. Um, certainly my childhood, I feel, was quite different from, you know, the way that I would say that I am and my, my partner uh, and even our friends um, are raising our children. It's a much more kind of regimented childhood these days where you've got all sorts of activities on a schedule, uh, even during the summertime, maybe more so during the summertime, that you've got all of these things that, that you have to do and places to be. Uh, but when I was a kid uh, back in the 80s, uh, in which... I'm giving you my age, but back in the <laughs> 80s, you know, in Calgary, uh, in the summertime, you know, as soon as you were out for the summer, you were just kind of roaming freely through yeah. your neighborhood. You would get on your bike in the morning and you would just bike all around and you would kind of meet up with these other kids. Maybe you'd play kick the can or or you know some version of dodgeball, uh, which I, I hate dodgeball. It's terrifying. But um, you hate dodgeball because you know, yeah, the ball's ball. coming at you so fast. The ball's coming at you so fast. It's just too much. <laughs> okay, uh, even back then, I didn't like. It. But uh, <laughs> you know, you're like roaming around. You you're going on adventures. Um, I remember there was this hill 
kind of just outside of my neighborhood that we called Grasshopper Hill. And we would just dare each other to ride our bikes through this landscape in which all of the grasshoppers would just kind of leap on you as you kind of tore your way through screaming. <laughs> and this kind of childhood is so alien now, I think. It's not really the way of things. Um and so I guess part of what I was doing with this book was um, having a bit of nostalgia about that kind of an existence where children did have more agency to kind of wonder, um, but also just to put that out there as as um, as an example. I mean, we're, we find in our household, we're trying to sort of uh, loosen the leash a bit and let our kids roam a bit more. Yeah, I was going to say that's sort of like a reminder for yourself, it sounds like, that, you know, I think as a parent, it's easy to overstructure a kid's day and to make sure they have something to do every single every single time. But it sounds like you're trying to remind yourself, too, as a parent, that this sort of uh, – I had a, a Richard Linklater, the filmmaker, described it to me the other day as a free-range childhood. You're trying to remind yourself that a free-range childhood is something to, worth cultivating as well. Yeah, and I love that expression, a free-range childhood. That's very apt. You're um, – you're, you're known, of course, to people who listen to this program for your for your fiction, for uh, the books I mentioned, The Half-Blood Blues and, and Washington Black. I, um, I, I can't even imagine the breadth of the answer to this question, but I want to ask it anyway. How was the writing process for writing this kid's book versus writing very well-researched, in-depth historical fiction? Oh, it was such a breath of fresh air. I just, um, it was really what I needed at that moment. I started writing it uh, during COVID. Um, you know, I think we were just coming out of lockdown, but it was still sort of a, a time that was um, kind of shadowed by by this feeling of being cloistered. And I remember just waking up one day and uh, I keep a notebook and a pen uh, on my bedside table and just kind of jotting out the the skeleton of this idea for for this book and feeling like just wonderful. Here was something that I could do that was um, not heavily research-based, uh, that was lighter, that was um, quicker, <laughs> in a sense, although you do do many drafts, of course. Um, you know, that first draft was just so instantaneous, and it was just such a, a pleasure, uh, which isn't to say that writing novels for adults isn't also a pleasure but it's a different kind of um a different kind of act right yes because it, it, from what i remember from our conversations in in the past you are quite uh, i don't know if diligent is the word um uh, involved um in the research you you quite deeply research you you go through all kinds of lengths to do the research for your historical fiction right yeah, yeah. And it gets to a point where I would almost, you know, I have to force myself to actually write the novel uh, rather than just keep researching, which is, you know, a bit of a passion for me. Uh, but it is a long process. It can be, you know, like a year, maybe even more than a year of researching for those adult novels. So uh, to get to do this, uh, which is something more playful uh, in a way, was just such a, you know, it was a gift. I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. 
From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. Um, before before we go, I, I wanted to ask you something about um, something else you're up to. You're the chair of judges for this year's Booker Prize. And it's sort of a full circle moment because your novel, Washington Black, was shortlisted for the Booker in, in 2018. I guess, first off, h- how does it feel to be the chair of this very illustrious prize? Do you feel a certain sense of responsibility? Definitely. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> So Washington Black was shortlisted in 2018, but Half-Blood Blues was shortlisted in 2011. And that shortlisting, I feel, just completely changed my life. Like I went from writing in total obscurity uh, to having, you know, a bit of a wider readership. And uh, the Booker and the Giller, you know, were kind of singularly responsible for for that uh, shift in my fortunes. And so I'm very aware that this is something that um, I'm not doing lightly and my my fellow uh, jurists uh, aren't doing this lightly. It's a very impassioned thing. Uh, and we're aware of the impact uh, that the prize can have. Um, so it's been, it's actually been really marvelous. It's kind of like this posh book club uh, to get to <laughs> sit down with these brilliant minds and, and discuss literature. It's been it's been great. But, but it sounds like you're aware of the impact. You're aware that the decision that, that you make can alter um, forever the the fortune of a of an artist's life definitely and um you know that's i guess that can sound like a heavy thing but it's also like how how wonderful is that uh <laughs> you know to a choice that you make can so change a life um but also it's you know it's it's not just about the winner it's kind of a celebration of of um of everyone who's nominated but also just you know a a wonderful opportunity to discuss world literature uh, on a kind of grand scale. So it's been lovely. Um, let, let me close off by saying this. With the with the book, we were talking a little bit earlier about the um, the sense of adventure. And again, I'm so grateful that that word is made up because I felt, ex-queerologist, I felt so... <laughs> <laughs> I felt like, well, I really need to get the old thesaurus out, Tom. <laughs> um, um, uh, but the, the idea of finding and you talked about the idea of having a very uh, uh, adventure filled childhood. And as we get older, our, our, um, our, our, our children's childhoods becomes more and more regimented. But did writing this book give you a sense of uh, a, a greater thirst for adventure, perhaps in your own life, even now as an adult? You know, I feel I'm just at this living at this time when I'm just, there's just so much on my plate that uh, I guess, yeah, I feel like on the horizon, there's potentially the the opportunity for a grand adventure. Uh, but right now it's just, uh, yeah, day by day. I think more the importance of it, the importance of trying to find it in your in one's own life, you know. That's true. There is this kind of sense of uh, wonder that's implicit with a lot of children's um just existing, just like finding a beetle or, or you know, seeing a, a you know, a rainbow or something. That this is something that children uh, notice and and will stop to to point out and tell you about. Whereas, 
I think just because you've experienced something so much, uh, you're inclined to kind of keep going on your way. And that's the wonder of children is that they do kind of point out uh, all of these small marvels around us. Um, S.E. Dujan, congratulations on the book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. Even as someone who doesn't have children myself, um, I, I really got a sense of, of wonder and, and trying to tap back into that natural kind of wonder in myself from, for re- from reading it. So thanks so much for the time. Oh, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. My conversation with the author Essie Dujin, the award-winning author Essie Dujin, her debut children's book, Garden of Lost Socks, is available now. All right, that's it for this episode of Q. The other episode uh, we have up today is with Nev Campbell, who you might know from like Scream or Party of Five. Uh, I love, so I don't know if, yeah, I do. I, I love the story, but I particularly love that Nev Campbell talks about this on the show because I don't think we talk about it enough. Before she was like Scream and Party Five and a big actor, she was a kid who was into ballet. And I don't mean like she was dancing around with her teddy bears. She was like going to the National Ballet School in, of Canada in Toronto, which is like one of the most prestigious ballet schools in the world. This is this is where it, I, I love that she talked about it. That doesn't work out. And almost like, you know, it, almost no one gets into that school. And if you get in, you, you never leave. And she talks about having, like, as a child, leave that school and, you know, how she's had to carry that with her and how it led to her executive producing this new movie about the National Ballet School, about her icon, Karen Kane, and what it really, the toll it really takes on ballet dancers when they have to stage Swan Lake. So go check that out wherever you got this podcast. All right, we'll see you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.